This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. In most people, sleep is a peaceful activity. Dreams are a normal component of our sleep and represent activity of the brain at a time that the rest of our body is inactive. However, for some individuals, sleep is not a peaceful activity. Some can experience very violent dreams, often associated with physical movements. For others, sleepwalking can occur. These activities can place the patient as well as the bed partner at risk for injury. So how common is this? What's known about this unusual behavior associated with sleep, and how can these patients be treated? In today's podcast, we'll discuss violent dreams, sleepwalking, and other strange nighttime events with our guests, sleep specialists, Dr. Robin Lloyd from the Department of Pediatrics and Adolescent Medicine, and Dr. Michael Silber from the Department of Neurology, both from the Mayo Clinic. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Robin and Mike, thank you so much for joining me today. This sounds like a fascinating topic, and I'm eager to learn more about it. Let's start by asking you to kind of give us a little bit of background on dreams. When do they typically occur while we're sleeping? Well, to understand that, we have to work out that sleep, of course, has two different phases, non-rapid eye movement or non-REM sleep and rapid eye movement or REM sleep. REM sleep is about a quarter of the night in most people, and it's split up into perhaps four to six periods in the course of the night, approximately once every 90 minutes to 120 minutes, but longer periods towards morning and shorter periods early in the night. Now, REM sleep is traditionally when we dream. And if somebody is woken up in REM sleep and asked, are you dreaming? About 85% of subjects will say, yes, I was dreaming. And the type of dreaming in REM sleep is the typical emotionally charged, often multicolor, vivid, surrealistic, strange dreams that we all recognize when we remember our dreams. On the other hand, interestingly, non-REM sleep is not devoid of thinking. If you wake somebody up in non-REM sleep, there's about a 30% chance they'll either say, yes, I was dreaming, or I wasn't asleep, I was just thinking. And Mm -hmm. if asked to describe those non-REM dreams, they'll be much simpler, often monochrome, very little action, not particularly emotionally charged. So you can have thinking and dream experiences of both types of sleep, but the traditional dreams we all think about occur mainly during REM sleep. And because REM sleep is more towards morning, it's more common to remember dreaming towards morning. So the 4K high resolution dreams tend to occur during our REM sleep period. Correct. Does everybody dream? Do we know if uh, Uh, some people do not? Well, we think that everybody who has REM sleep dreams, which is really the majority of people, I mean, there's some patients who fall with diseases or certain drugs may suppress REM, but if you have REM sleep, which the majority of us do, you almost certainly dream. The issue is that if you don't wake up in the morning or during REM sleep, you're not going to recall the dreams at all. And even if you do wake up during REM sleep, the dreams 
often aren't put into our memory circuits. So you might remember them for a few moments and 10 minutes later, you've forgotten it and you think you didn't dream at all. So most people who say, I never dream, really they mean I don't remember my dreams. Mm -hmm. Okay. How about those who talk during their sleep? Is this associated with dreaming or is this something completely different? So talking can actually occur at any stage of sleep. And as Dr. Silber mentioned, we go into these different cycles of sleep throughout the course of the night. And if there's a partial arousal from any stage of sleep, someone may mumble or whimper. Sometimes there are complex conversations that may occur. So typically there's a partial arousal from some stage of sleep and not necessarily just associated with dream state. Okay. I'm really interested in uh, our dream content. I've had a variety of dreams and sometimes I've actually solved problems during my dreams. And I wake up and I think that's the diagnosis I've been trying to figure out or some problem gets solved during dreams. So what influences our dream content? It, sometimes it seems like there are components of our daytime reality and other times they just seem totally bizarre. That's an interesting question and, and actually a whole field separate from sleep medicine called lucid dreaming, where there are a lot of people who claim they can influence their dreams by planting the seeds to help them figure things out in their sleep. One thing we do know is from a sleep perspective that if people have nightmares, oftentimes they're associated with certain conditions. So dreams that aren't pleasant, oftentimes they're associated with PTSD, alcohol, stress, mood disorders, but they can also be associated with certain sleep conditions. I had one patient who told me they had a recurring dream that they had fallen out of a canoe and they couldn't quite get up. They had the suffocating feeling. And interestingly enough, this patient had sleep apnea. And of course we know sleep apnea tends to be worse in the dream state of sleep. So that was influencing their dream content. That's very interesting. So nightmares and dreams, does everybody have nightmares or are they really associated with some stressful activity that person is going through? Do we know that? Well, a nightmare is really defined as a frightening dream that wakes you up. If you don't wake up, you don't know you've had a frightening dream. So a nightmare is a frightening dream that arouses you. And the interesting thing about nightmares is you may dream you're fighting back against some assailant or you're running for your life. But generally, when you wake up, you're lying flat in the bed, heads on the pillow. You usually haven't talked or shouted, though you may have said a few words, and you certainly aren't running. So it's all in the dream it's not physical in nightmares um, so it's a form of dreaming almost everybody will have nightmares on occasion sometimes there's no reason sometimes it's a period of stress but common nightmares as robin was saying if they really are recurrent we think of the whole range of psychiatric disorders they're common in anxiety disorders depression schizophrenia PTSD especially, and especially if there's a recurrent dream that corresponds in some way to daytime flashbacks and to the traumatic event, PTSD is something we have to think about in recurrent nightmares. Certain drugs do it. Levodopa for Parkinson's disease, beta blockers sometimes do it, and other medications may cause nightmares, so we should always look at the list of medications. But an occasional nightmare, quite normal, nothing to be concerned about. Good. Well, the worst nightmares I get are 
that I am going through a college class and it's the last day <laughs> and I've not attended any lectures and the final exam is that day. And uh, <laughs> that's the worst I've had. But. So let's take it the next step. Let's talk about violent dreams. Those can be potentially dangerous. Violent dreams can certainly be dangerous and are different from nightmares in that the person actively and physically acts out the dream, which is far from normal. So these are patients, often more commonly men, perhaps 80% men, but definitely women as well, most commonly middle-aged to older, but can be younger. And Robin will tell us a little bit later, perhaps about the unusual situation of acting out dreams in children and what that might mean. But most often they are middle-aged to older adults who start talking incessantly, shouting, screaming, punching, flailing their arms, and kicking during sleep. The, for the unfortunate bed partners, they can be injured, bruised. Um, we've had some more serious injuries, teeth knocked out, black eyes, and the patient themselves can injure themselves. They can flay out their arms, hit it against a bed stand with bruises and lacerations, throw themselves off the bed. Um, we've had a, a couple of patients who've had subdural hematomas landing out of bed and other more serious injuries. So this is far from a sort of strange condition. It's a dangerous condition. And this makes us seriously think about the condition called REM sleep behavior disorder. What this is, is exactly what I'm describing to you. And if you see a patient with this, they should be referred to a sleep specialist because this is a serious condition. And because it's serious, we almost always confirm the diagnosis in a sleep study in which we monitor muscle tone during sleep with electrodes above and below the chin, on each arm and on each leg, looking for what we call muscle atonia in REM sleep. Because when we're in REM sleep, our muscles are paralyzed, with certain exceptions. Obviously, the diaphragm continues to work. The extraocular muscles continue to work. That gives us the rapid eye movements that give REM sleep its state. And interestingly, the middle ear muscles continue to work. But other skeletal muscles are essentially atonic. But in REM sleep behavior disorder, we see increased muscle twitching on the EMG channels on the study. And very often the video will show these jerky movements and sometimes we'll pick up the full-blown acting out of dreams. When you ask the person about their dreams in this condition, they generally change, they become more violent, but the person is not the aggressor. Almost always they are defending themselves against attack by people or animals. Occasionally it's a sports dream. We had one man who shouted out touchdown as he was hauling his wife off the bed onto the floor. She wasn't amused about as you can imagine, but they can be adventure dreams, but probably 90% of the dreams are defense. And the unfortunate bed partner isn't being attacked in the dream. The bed partner in the dream turns into the assailant and just happens to be lying there when um, the person is acting it out. The events are also not stereotyped. They're different each dream period, so they don't sound like seizures, but that's what it is. And we see it not infrequently. So can a, a REM sleep behavior disorder start at any age and what causes them to start? Mm -hmm. Any ideas? Well, the majority of patients, we'll hear about children in a moment, but the majority of patients are middle-aged to older, starting over the age of 50 years. 
What causes it? Well, in the majority of these patients, they are at risk from developing a group of neurodegenerative conditions called synucleinopathies. The commonest of those are Parkinson's disease and the form of dementia called dementia with Lewy bodies. A rare other synucleinopathy is multiple system atrophy, but that's far less common. What we think is happening is that the REM sleep behavior disorder is due to the beginnings of pathology in the ponds where REM sleep is controlled. The Lewy bodies, which are the characteristic pathologic finding of most of these disorders, is already forming in the cells of the ponds, sometimes years or even decades before the other features of these disorders develop. But the majority of those patients we think are at risk from developing these disorders. So we follow them very carefully. What is the risk? Well, taking the whole population of middle-aged and older people together, the risk is probably about a 70% risk over 15 years that they will develop one of these disorders. But it's a very age-dependent. If you start acting out your dreams at over the age of 70, that risk is high, maybe 6% per year. If you start between 60 and 70, our latest data suggests the risk is slightly lower. And at 50 or 60, lower still. In other words, it seems age is important. The younger patients may still develop it, but they may take several decades before they develop it. When it's below 50 years of age, we just don't know. Many of those younger patients are on antidepressants. And we know that in rare patients, antidepressants can precipitate REM sleep behavior disorder. Now, some of that may be just an idiosyncratic reaction, but there are studies suggesting that even those younger patients on antidepressants who develop it may over decades be at risk from developing one of these disorders as well. But in younger patients, really younger children, it's a different category of disease. And maybe Robin wants to comment on that. Sure. So we actually wrote a paper about this back in 2012, where it was a review of patients we've seen in our sleep lab. We excluded patients who had sleep apnea because, as we mentioned, that tends to be worse in REM sleep. And so we didn't there can be a pseudo REM kind of picture if someone's struggling to breathe. And so they might respond to that. So taking out all of those patients, what we found is that children who had narcolepsy or went on to develop narcolepsy, that was a risk factor. Kids with certain neurodevelopmental disorders or syndromic disorders, certain medications were associated with this. Now, Eventually, we'll do a longitudinal study over decades to find out what happens to see if some of these kids indeed go on to develop a synucleinopathy. We also found that some of the kids did indeed have abnormal MRIs, such as a Chiari that was pushing up against the brainstem and causing some disruption. So we, at this point, do not believe it is the same process as that with older people. But I think over time, will know as we follow folks longitudinally. Mm -hmm. So there's a variety of causes for this, and this may be an unfair question, but can these patients be managed? I mean, obviously you probably want the bed partner mm -hmm. out of the bed uh, just for their own safety, but can this be managed? 
Yes, this, the symptoms are in most patients, not all pretty treatable. And we really want to keep the bed partner in the bed as much as possible if they want to stay. Now, there's some who've left already before we even mm -hmm. see them and, the, and they're quite, the couple's quite happy to sleep apart. But others, it's very important to sleep together. So we first address the safety of the bed environment. Any guns in the bedroom, take them away or at least see they're not loaded. Is there a carpet on the floor for people who throw themselves out of bed, we may suggest cushions or another mattress on the floor, move furniture away from the bed. But then we do have medications which can help the symptoms. And melatonin is the first line therapy. We don't know why it works. The doses we usually need are between 9 and 15 milligrams before bed. But there seems to be about a 70% improvement in the movements with melatonin, which is really nice because it's a harmless um, over-the-counter supplement. And most people do well on it. For those who don't, we move to clonazepam and, you know, clonazepam's got side effects, but it, it's very effective, more than 90% effective in controlling the movements of REM sleep behavior disorder. So the nice thing is we can control the movements. Regrettably, what we can't do at present is reduce the risk of the development of Parkinson's or dementia with Lewy bodies with time. The question is, should we even tell patients about those risks because of the anxiety that it causes? We've just finished a study in which we asked that question to patients later. Should we have told you? Was that a good thing? And over 90% of them said, of course you should have told me. I'd have been very angry if you'd kept it back from me. Mm -hmm. In addition, many of the patients have already gone to the internet and learned something about it. The reasons I think it's important to tell patients if they wish to know, and I ask them, do they want to know about the implications, are first, patient autonomy. They have the right to know. Second, what I call bucket lists. You know, if somebody's planning the rest of their life, they may want to do things that they enjoy a little earlier, maybe, if they can afford it than they otherwise would. And then if there are research um, studies that may come up in the future, if they know about this, they may be more easily able to participate in research. But it does generate anxiety, and our questionnaire confirmed that, and we need to be manage that anxiety. Well, let's talk about another behavior that sounds like it may be related. I'm not sure. How about sleepwalking? Sleepwalking tends to be much more common in children. And so being a pediatric sleep specialist, I think that kind of falls more under my wheelhouse. As Mike was talking about the stages of sleep, as we know, REM is more common in the second half of the night. We have more of a certain stage called N3 or our deep sleep that occurs in the first third of the night. Most of the sleepwalking episodes occur out of this stage N3. Very ubiquitous in children. There was one study that looked at, we call them parasomnias or partial arousal parasomnias, funny behaviors that happen at night, usually from a partial arousal from slow wave sleep or this deep sleep. And there are different ones. There are sleep tears. Of course, if anyone's had a child who has had a sleep tear where they start crying and not responding to the parent, they're very agitated and, and upset. It can be very upsetting. These are more common in the younger age. And then these kids have a risk of going on to developing sleepwalking. 
as they get a little bit older. But one study out of Canada looked at kids longitudinally, and they found that almost 90% of kids in the first six years of life have had at least one parasomnia. So that's what I mean when I say they're quite ubiquitous. The sleepwalking tends to occur a little bit later, maybe in the five to 10, six to 12 year old. And the estimates are that it is in about 15% of children. Now, what's tough about parasomnias is we really don't know a true occurrence rate because so often they're not visualized. So maybe a child finds themselves in the living room and they wake up, they take themselves back to the bedroom. They may not have recollection of it in the morning. And so this would never be recognized by the parent. So a child who starts sleepwalking, do they persist throughout their life or does this usually stop on its own? One study, Tukasa study, it was the Tucson Children's study, looked at resolution rates over time. And they found that about two thirds of kids had resolution of their sleepwalking by the time they hit teenagehood. Certainly some folks can persist or some children can persist as adult sleepwalkers, which Mike can address, but most of the time they do indeed resolve. Yes, well, we of course see in adulthood patients who they haven't resolved and mm -hmm. occasionally ones that start a little later, but obviously that's a small minority. So what is an individual who's sleepwalking capable of doing? Can they carry out complex tasks like uh, unlock doors, open a window, drive a car? Can they do those things? All of the above. And it's quite frightening for the family because usually these are children who are potentially placed into an, an injurious situation or dangerous situation. And of course, the children who are referred our way oftentimes have had some significant event. I had one boy who woke up in the middle of a ditch when he had rolled his four-wheeler, unbeknownst to him. I had another boy who found himself outside. And, you know, that's scary being in the upper Midwest in the middle sure. of winter. So, mm -hmm. yes, complex conversations, complex behaviors and sleep are absolutely possible. I have a series of patients who've thrown themselves out through windows. Usually there's a sort of vague dream-like image of the birds being set on fire or something like that. And they hurl themselves across the room and through the, and through the window with sometimes serious injuries. This is not REM sleep behavior disorder. This is sleepwalking from non-REM sleep, as Robin says. But, you know, I think it's very important to realize these are a small minority of sleepwalkers. The majority of sleepwalkers do not do anything dramatic like this. And we're all of us biased in sleep medicine because we get sent the worst <laughs> cases. Yeah. Not, not the vast majority of children who sleepwalk never hit a sleep specialist. The general pediatricians deal with it. Mm -hmm. I've, I've always been told you should not wake up somebody who's sleepwalking. I don't know if there's any validity to that, but what's the status on that? So just in general parasomnias, the kids are usually partially awake and more so asleep. And so if you do wake them up, they can potentially become very agitated or you can actually protract whatever the event is that's occurring. So whether it's a sleep terror or a confusional arousal, which may have been a relatively brief transient event, 
if one tries to awaken the child, it may protract it and lead to increased agitation. Okay. Is sleepwalking associated with any other neurologic conditions? So it most typically occurs in, in healthy children. Again, can be quite ubiquitous, but it is important to sort out, are these events strange events that are happening overnight, are they seizures or are they they normal sleepwalking events? Mm-hmm. Again, most commonly they're normal children without underlying neurological issues is the case with REM sleep behavior disorder. There can be some major triggers and we know that sleep deprivation, acute illness, these can be triggers because Oftentimes, this leads to a rebound of that stage N3 that we were talking about. Other things such as primary sleep disorders that lead to a partial arousal from sleep can be a risk factor as well. So those would be more common phenomenon rather than an underlying neurological event. So something like sleep apnea where a patient's snoring and having snorts that lead to partial arousal or maybe excessive kicking in sleep that lead to leads to partial arousal, those would be events that would predispose one to having a partial arousal from from sleep. Mm -hmm. But I think it's important that unlike REM sleep behavior disorder, which is often the prodrome of a neurodegenerative disorder, these non-REM parasomnias like sleepwalking are not associated Mm -hmm. with neurodegeneration and do not lead on, even in adulthood, to any other serious conditions. And I always reassure my adult patients where it turns out to be sleepwalking and not REM sleep behavior disorder, they are not at risk from Parkinson's or anything else. Okay. Um, Having said that, I just must qualify that by saying some patients who are developing dementia may for the first time in their life start showing sleepwalking behavior, Mm -hmm. but that's a completely different category. The patient is already showing signs of dementia then. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, how do you treat sleepwalkers? So from my perspective, the first thing is to try and address triggers. And so things that might predispose the child to having partial arousal from sleep. So I'm always screening for primary sleep disorders such as sleep apnea or periodic limb movement disorder. In this technical world we live in, so often kids are keeping devices at their bedside or or leave them playing while they're sleeping. And it's amazing how that external noise or light or variability can lead to partial arousal and can lead to more of these events. Other potential triggers, again, trying to address the sleep deprivation, which, again, can be tied to the technologies. So often kids who are doing these activities well into the night are very sleep deprived. And so first of all, I try and address triggers. Secondly, if there's any concern, is this a seizure type of behavior or is there a a concern for primary sleep disorder? I'll take it the next step and do a sleep study to try and assess for these things. Then I address the triggers, address if there's a primary sleep disorder. And then as Dr. Silber or Mike mentioned, it's really important that we look at safety. So probably the the biggest thing in, in treating these kids is making sure they're safe. So again, taking away sharp objects in the room, potentially, dangerous objects that they might hurt themselves on in sleep or having good alarm systems on the windows, the doors, so that they don't go outside. 
very important. So safety, and then most of them can be treated non-pharmacologically if you address these triggers, if you make sure they're getting enough sleep, if you address the primary sleep disorders, and if you have a safe sleep environment. Now, that being said, there are kids who have had very serious events, they're, they've been injurious or potentially injurious, they're frequent and extremely disruptive to the family, despite everything that we've done, then we look at some pharmacotherapy options. And again, clonazepam would be one option. Again, small percentage, but that certainly is an option. Because the kids, we expect them to outgrow these with time. Usually what I do is, is have a defined period of time and then gradually taper them off of the clonazepam and see if these have resolved because that would be the expectation over time. For the adult sleepwalkers who are serious sleepwalkers, we've tried hypnosis. We've done a study on hypnosis, which in a percentage of patients may be effective. And then clonazepam would be the drug of choice in adults, often extremely effective. But for many of them, they need it for many, many years, if not lifelong. We try, like Robin, to take them off every now and then. Well, it sounds like some people have more activity during their sleep than I have during my waking state, but my goodness. So are there other unusual behaviors that have been known to occur during sleep? Yes, well, there are two others we can briefly talk about. The first is sleep-related eating disorder. And these are patients, more commonly women in this case, for reasons we don't understand, who in semi-consciousness or sometimes complete unconsciousness will get out of bed, walk to the kitchen, prepare and eat food, sometimes rather unusual combinations, very messily food left in the kitchen, food brought back to the bed. And sometimes the only reason they know they've done it is because they see the mess in the morning. This is probably a variant of sleepwalking. It also comes out of non-REM sleep, not REM sleep. The causes of it, well, the first thing we look at in these patients is do they have restless leg syndrome because there's a relationship there or other sleep disorders like sleep apnea. We then look to see are they taking Zolpidem? Um, we described this many years ago, short-acting benzodiazepine receptor agonists, which can trigger sleep-related eat, sleep eating disorder. Sometimes there are patients with polypharmacy who are doing this. So we adjust medications, treat other sleep disorders. And if it's still prevalent, we'll try clonazepam, but it doesn't always work. It's a difficult condition to treat. There's been some success with the anti-epileptic topiramate, which suppresses appetite, but that often causes side effects. The other one I'll just briefly mention is what's been called sexomnias, sexual activity during sleep. Now, if we think about where all this comes from, hunger, sex, behaviors, these are very primitive behaviors that come really from deep within the brain in the hypothalamus, and they're all sort of associated with deep sleep non-REM sleep generally. So in sexomnias, patients may do a variety of things, self-masturbation, fondling a bed partner, through to forced intercourse. And this is probably also a variant of sleepwalking. Occasional patients with REM sleep behavior disorder have been described with this, but most of them have a non-REM parasomnia. These are we take very seriously, especially in certain situations where there may be medical legal consequences. And I've been involved in at least one case in which there was a serious medical legal consequence from it. We try and treat it much the same way as sleepwalking. Not common, but certainly they do occur. 
Well, we spend so much of our lifetime sleeping, but uh, you've taught me an awful lot. I didn't realize all these things can happen while we're supposed to be peacefully asleep. <laughs> um, well, let's summarize. Can you each maybe give me one or two key points that uh, reflect our discussion on violent dreams and sleepwalking? Well, maybe I can just start with the adults. It's important to separate out nightmares from REM sleep behavior disorder in which one actually acts out those nightmare experiences. REM sleep behavior disorder is potentially dangerous with potentially serious consequences of what might develop in the future with neurologic disease and patients who act out dreams should be referred to sleep specialists. We do have good treatment to at least suppress the behaviors. So from a pediatric perspective, I would say that most of the nocturnal events are non-REM in nature and are not associated with a neurodegenerative disease. And so that should be reassuring to a, a parent whose child is having these events overnight. In terms of when a primary care physician should cross over dealing with them versus referring them to the sleep center. So if they are extremely frequent and disruptive if they're potentially injurious or if there's concern about a primary sleep disorder, mm -hmm. these children should absolutely be referred to the Center for Sleep Medicine. In terms of treatment, again, safety, 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 and non-pharmacologic approaches addressing the underlying potential triggers. Again, insufficient sleep is just rampant in our children these days with the overlap of technology into sleep. So Getting back to the basics and addressing potential triggers, very important, but in the rare patient where we need to use pharmacotherapy, clonazepam is the medication of choice. But I think the final point I would like to leave with everyone is that safety is key when we're dealing with these nocturnal events. We've been discussing violent dreams, sleepwalking, and other strange nighttime events with sleep experts, Dr. Robin Lloyd and Dr. Michael Silber. Robin and Mike, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us today. This was just fascinating. I think I'm going to go take a nap. <laughs> you can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week. Next week.